Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Yeah, Julie, I was on the way to work this morning, and I was waiting on the train at the station. Mm-hmm. And then, as sometimes happens in our modern world on a Wednesday, uh, I looked over, I saw a robotic humanoid standing there reading a Kindle. And, uh, you know, I just shut down. I just uh, I, I just started screaming, and then it was like a silent scream, mm-hmm. you know, clutching my face. Yeah. And then I'm just, uh, I am just just crawl into a, co- into a corner of the MARTA station, and I just hold myself for about 15, 20 minutes until someone comes and came and administered medication to me to, to, to wake me back up and get mm-hmm. me back in my body and move me again. Yeah, classic case of RS, replicant shock. Yeah, yeah. A, a subset of future shock. Future shock. Yes, it's a it's a wonderful concept, and at heart, it deals with change, with the rate of change in our world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, generation after generation, we we of course cling to illusions of consistency, of continuity, as we uh, discussed in a recent episode. Uh, but we are always in this state of constant change. Our society is, our bodies are, our science, our art, our values, our technology. Everything is really in the state of flux. But we end up sort of clinging, I think, to these, these illusions that, that there's a set way that things should be, you know? We- well, I think because change illustrates to us that, uh, time is ephemeral, it's mm-hmm. passing, and change is a real marker, right? Yeah. It's saying, es- essentially, hey, guess what? You're gonna die one day. And that's a bummer. Nobody wants that. And we've talked about this before in terms of normalcy bias. You know, even though we know changes on the horizon or there's something that that we need to react to, a lot of us just kind of go back to the baseline and, and like to assume that everything is going to remain the same, even though we have evidence swirling around us all the time that change is happening. It's interesting. I think back to uh, when I was a kid trying to imagine what I would be like as an adult. Mm hmm. And it's this kind of weird mix of ideas because obviously there were plenty of sci-fi ideas around me and sci-fi ideas about what the future might might uh, consist of. And so, to a certain extent, I'm, I might have imagined myself going into space or that be, maybe being in the cards, you know. Mm-hmm. But still, my idea of my immediate future self and my immediate surroundings was very much based in my present of the time without, you know, without, without giving it a lot of thought, but that was kind of like the, the default setting. You know, we base uh, our assumptions on the, the most readily available model. And I think that's because there's so much uh, routinization in our lives that it gives us this false sense of continuity. And we're doing the same thing over day in and day out. And so you get the sense that there may be, maybe there is a stasis. But um, also some of it is just rooted in past thinking, past structures and ideologies. Um, and I was thinking about this the other day. We are at a point in history, technologically at least, where we can actually look back in the universe past and understand that the universe has always been uh, changing and there's a constant rate of change uh, in effect. And we look at this just in terms of something like the cosmic background radiation that we can measure and we can say, oh, you know, after the Big Bang, it wasn't just, you know, you know, this void. There was always something that was going on and there were a great many changes that we're only now beginning to completely um, understand in this coherent way that the physical world is about entropy. Yeah, I mean, you look back at older 
uh, archaic, even primitive views of the universe. And not all of them, but a lot of them were, were exceedingly human-centric. They, the time began with humans, and if it ended, it ends with humans. Mm-hmm. And our modern understanding of, is, of course, that we're just this blip on the uh, on, on the cosmic timeline, mm-hmm. and there are things that have existed before, things that will exist afterwards. Like we're essentially uh, we're like Betamax uh, in the, tech, in the tech, technological timeline, you know. And at the time, it seems like we're the most important. It seems like we're we are the thing, but uh, VHS is just around the corner. Uh, compact disc just around the yeah. corner, the Blu-ray, digital, all of it's coming. Well, and it's interesting that you say that. You, you point to technology as a way to begin to mark the passing of time. And if you look at Moore's Law, um, this is something that is uh, the idea that computing power doubles every two years, which brings more and more features and, and greater uh, rates of change in terms of our technology. But Moore's Law isn't just a law. It's it's uh, it's uh, this very real idea that is playing out that the juggernaut of technology is real. It's not in our minds. And so we begin to see Moore's Law at play in all sectors of our lives, things seeming to speed up. Yeah, innovation feeds back on innovation. Uh, computing processes just become more and more complicated and more and more powerful. And eventually, hypothetically, we reach that point where computer AIs reach and surpass human cognitive power, uh, the uh, technological singularity. That's right. When when computers just kick us to the curb because they're like, wow, really? That's all you guys got? But in the meantime, computers have also created just an intense amount of data. And some would say that data would then give us uh, so much information to make choices about that we would be in a state of overchoice or information overload. And we owe this term, as well as a number of terms we're going to talk about here in the podcast and the overall theme of Future Shock, to Alvin and Heidi Toffler, authors of the 1971 book Future Shock. Yes. Heidi Toffler is uh, an unacknowledged co-author, but of course later on after publication, she became known as the person who also influenced this book. Quite a deal. But in Future Shock, they write, if overstimulation at the sensory level increases the distortion with which we perceive reality, cognitive Overstimulation interferes with our ability to think. This was the first time people had said, hey, look, let's take a a big view of what's going on, uh, what's happened in the past, what's happening in the present, in the future, and see this rate of change and how it's affecting us. What I love about Future Shock is that it is prophetic in places, it's hyperbolic in places, uh, there's stuff that holds up, there's stuff that doesn't hold up. We're going to talk about all of that in this podcast. But in its in what it gets right and in what it gets wrong, it it stands as this uh, this this potent example of of how we've come to to view the future and and also you know our fear of the future, our fear of change, mm-hmm. and uh, and I feel like anytime we're we're contemplating our fears, including the fear of the future, the fear of change, the fear of impermanence, uh, you have to have a certain about amount of overreaction built into the model. You know, it's kind of like. Uh, the, the idea of uh, of monsters as symbols, and they symbolize things about ourselves and our in our lives, and they often have to be outrageous examples to drive home something that is uh, less frightening at times. Well, I think it it's not so much frightening to us anymore because a lot of the concepts that are covered in this 1971 book are kind of old hat for us now. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it must have been just terrifying to people. And I think that that is borne out in the numbers because if you look at this book, something like six million copies uh, worldwide, in the first year there were 15 printings of this book. 
and it shot up on the bestseller list. So people had a, a very real reaction to this idea because I think this is probably the first time that, that um, people had really stepped back in this way and presented all of the information and all the change that was on the horizon based on the evidence at that time. And um, now if you look at this era, the 1970s, this is um, an important era because there's so much stuff going on here. I mean, you have um, the whole peace and love thing, which mm-hmm. is disintegrating. Um, you're seeing a lot more strife, economic imbalance, violence. Um, the culture of the 70s is it's just itself very interesting. Yeah, I mean, just think about some of the the things we have going on uh, during this era. We have uh, all the psychedelic drugs. We have uh, Vietnam. We have rock and roll still going strong. We have, uh, oh, yeah, between 69 and 72, man was visiting the moon. Right. And uh, and it seemed like we would continue to maybe do that for the, for the, in, the, uh, in the following decades. You have the birth of modern computing. Uh, the world's first uh, general microprocessor, the Intel uh, 4004, which came out uh, in 71. You have fiber optics. You have microwave ovens. So you have a lot of big changes that are occurring. You have birth control. Birth control. Uh, a lot of this is huge. And then the sort of base stock of all of this, I think of it this way, is that science fiction has been in full bloom since the 50s, right? Um, you have Philip K. Dick's 1968 Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, right? So you have all these ideas swirling around on how humanity is changing and how it could potentially change in the future. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, in the, in the previous decades, you saw plenty of these, like, short films, like The Kitchen of Tomorrow, uh, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and these ideas of, of how technology was going to affect the way we live, but they seemed a, a little, a little further off in the future. But by the seventies, we're really seeing things begin to integrate around us, and it's sort of like that, uh, that day when you realize that some life event or some, uh, work, uh, deadline that had been approaching is now here and you realize wow the future is here in in a, in a in a way in a shape that I'm not quite ready for yeah and um you know before like you said in the 1950s it was all kind of shiny and new and you know mm-hmm. futurist and look this product's going to make your life so much easier and then you fast forward to the 70s and there's a lot of different fracturing going on in society and so Alvin Toffler uh, who at times has been a, a student radical, a welder, a newspaper reporter, and fortune editor. Um, he and his wife, Heidi, decided to try to describe the psychological state for individuals and societies who hold this perception that there's too much change in too short of a time period and that there's no acknowledgement that there's this enormous structural change going on and that we're transitioning. This is really important from an industrial society to what they call a super industrial society. Now, the one criterion for for, for um, trying to figure out what is a super industrial society as opposed to industrial society is that there's more laborers in post-industrial businesses than in agriculture-based businesses. And, of course, we do see this. We see this flip. A lot of people going to post-industrial um, types of companies during this time. Right. So that example I gave at the beginning of the episode about just sort of shutting down psychologically on Marta on Marta mm-hmm. when you see an android or something, that is in a, in a kind of hammy way the essence of Future Shock. Uh, the Future Shock doesn't always, uh, all the interpretations don't necessarily in, involve like complete physical shutting down or madness. It's not future madness per se. No. But we're talking about 
the perceived premature arrival of the future. We're talking about the shock of rapid change. We're talking about too much change in too short of time. And it's important to note that all of these things, it's going to depend on who's viewing the the, the present and who and, and what their idea of the future is. It's going to vary from case to case, right? What's your perception of change in the world? For instance, in a Wired article by Jason Kingdon, he referred to, quote, Rip Van Winkle syndrome, which is sort of a, a take on future shock. And this is the idea that uh, uh, you feel amazed and bamboozled on stumbling over an innovation that you'd failed to notice before. So, uh, you know, it's easy to you can have something like future shock based on something that is actually not new at all. You just you weren't aware of. And if you have a hyper awareness of what uh, is going on in the, the tech, the, the tech industries and and in, uh, in culture, then you're, you're maybe not going to be shocked by by the next uh, you know bit on uh, the local news about what the youth are doing. Now, one of the reasons why we really wanted to cover this topic in this book is because um, in some ways we feel this way today, right? We oh, feel yeah. like we are completely inundated with data. We are, um, you know, sometimes uh, met with a lot of anxiety and paralysis about all the choices before us. So the reason that Future Shock is so interesting, the book, is because... It is a very thoughtful treatment of this topic. And some of the stuff is still relevant today. And some of it, um, you know, the, the Tofflers got wrong. And we'll discuss what they got right and what they got wrong. But at the heart of it is this idea of trying to um, understand how these abstract and concrete systems are working together on the human being. And this was uh, something that was that was captured in a documentary in 1972. Yes. It doesn't. I don't think it quite gives justice to the book because I think it not. plays more on the sort of alarmist, the the Cassandra elements of the book. Because I really actually feel like the book is presented in a in a kind of calm manner and just saying, well, these are the things that are going on right now. Um, but it does have this sort of reefer madness uh, flavor to it that I really love. Yeah, the the book is is absolutely wonderful, and 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 is still in print. You can still get a copy of it. Uh, I highly recommend anyone who's interested to pick it up. I mean, you do have to to put yourself in the mindset a little bit and realize that this is a a voice of uh, of the 1970s speaking to the people of the 1970s. But yeah, for instance, that he uses the term roboteer, a roboteer is a roboteer, yeah, uh, who works on artificial intelligence. Ah, so there's some very quaint terms in there. Well, he's also coining a lot of terms too. So, True. Um, there are there are a lot of words that he he's he's rolling out that that I later realized oh well he invented that you know yeah. he's he's the first person who was actually talking about this particular concept. Heidi Toffler uh, actually is the the person who um, created the aphorism that the only thing that stays the same is change. Ah, there so, you go. That, yeah. Um, yes, but but if you if you can't get a hold of the book or you're not sure you want to do check out the documentary. It's been in its entirety on YouTube for like almost ten years now. So. Uh, it's, I'm pretty sure you'll be able to find it. Uh, but they, they made the documentary in 72. It is narrated by Orson Welles, the great Orson Welles, um, who is also great in size and, uh, and you think maybe a little bit intoxicated. He seems a little intoxicated in, in, in the clips that I saw and he's kind of, you know, turtleneck wearing, cigar puffing. He, the, it opens with him on a, um, airport moving walkway. He's kind of lumbering down that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's after our fantastic intro, 
where there's a couple walking towards the camera in a park setting. We can't quite see their face because of the gleam of the sun. And then when they get closer, the blur moves out, the glare goes away, and we see that they're robots. (laughs) And there's this wonderful music because, as it turns out, um, the uh, musician Gil Melly uh, did the music for the Future Shock uh, short film. And this is the same artist responsible for the soundtrack for the film The Andromeda Strain, as well as Night Gallery, the classic Rod Serling. So that's why it has that reverb madness sense to it. Like that wonderful, ominous music with a little jazz, but also some some wonderful synthesizer effects going on. So even if you're just a fan of crazy, cool voiceovers and and weird 70s, uh, you know, the weird 70s look and feel of things, then then Future Shock. Uh, the documentary is definitely worth checking out. Yeah, it's great. Uh, Orson Welles says, In the course of my work, which has taken me to just about every corner of the globe, I see many aspects of a phenomenon which I am just beginning to understand. Our modern technologies have changed the degree of sophistication beyond our wildest dreams. But this technology has exacted a pretty heavy price. We live in an age of anxiety and time of stress. And with all of our sophistication, we are, in fact, the victims of our own technological strengths. We are the victims of shock. Future shock. Nice. Thanks. That's not really Wells, but, you know. You get a yeah, but you definitely get a sense of of it because there's a there's a gravity to everything he's saying, and there there's a there's a, a fear. It, the the film really does uh, turn the dial up on the the fear factor yeah. of Future Shock, and and at times it's it's hammy and hilarious, and 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 I love it. Like when he's talking about an artificial elbow being quote one more step towards an artificial man. Uh, yes, that which, elbow. Which, yes, technically. Like, there's a whole scene there where they talk <laughs> yeah. about, uh, about that, some of the health topics, and they show, uh, an individual whose life was saved by, uh, I can't remember if it was artificial heart, or artificial heart valve, or some sort of, uh, uh, device. But they managed to make it seem a little scary, and <laughs> you have to step outside and be like, wait, did this technology saved this guy's life. Why well, are you trying to convince me to be afraid of this? And, and that it's just a, a slippery slope to androids. Because Toffler in the book brings us up sort of obliquely, like at what point, and we've talked about this before, like at what point are you augmenting ourselves and becoming transhuman? Now, again, Toffler just sort of puts that out there in the book. Um, and it's not as if he's saying that if you have a pacemaker, you are all of a sudden not human, but he's bringing up the question of what direction are we moving? Yeah, one of the important things to keep in mind about Future Shock is that even though it's it's fun to focus on some of these uh, sort of, oh, you know, fear of the youth, fear of the technology aspects, so much of it is about, first of all, how is this technology affecting me and my perception of the world, my ability to work with the world, but also how are advances in technology, how are changes in society and culture, how are they affecting systems that are already in place in the world? Um, one one uh, particular aspect that is not mentioned in the book that instantly comes to mind here is, of course, when you see, uh, say, uh, uh, the Internet uh, arriving and, and being ahead of various uh, industries and systems, such as uh, uh, how uh, Napster uh, affected uh, the music industry, mm-hmm. where f- music sharing and our ability to digitally use music was way ahead of the industry's ability to regulate it or or may, you know, make money off of it yeah. and even understand it. And so a certain amount of chaos erupted out of that, and we still, to a certain extent, are, are, are dealing with the after effects of that. 
Yeah, and actually Tofflers, they would say that right now, that there's not the infrastructure that's needed still, that we intellectual intellectually property rights are just one example of how, you know, the law has not really kept up with what's going on on a technological level. And we'll talk more about that and mm-hmm. some of their ideas about um, how we are still lagging behind in those departments. Well, let's talk about some of the themes covered in this book before we talk oh, about yes. what the Tofflers got wrong. Uh, we are talking about 20 chapters with uh, main themes and then about 108 subtopics. So really, the Tofflers took a massive introspective look into what was going on and really tried to cover all of the, the ground that they could. And that's why it's such an amazing book. Yeah, it's one of those books. You know, sometimes you read uh, really important works and you think, oh, I could have written that. But Future Shock is one of those books that I look at and I'm just in awe at yeah. how thorough it is because some of, just some of the topics that they cover here include, um, uh, overchoice, uh, pressure to keep up with the latest technology, rapidly expanding knowledge, information overload, computer fueled society, uh, temporary consumer culture, uh, youth movements, new transient lifestyles, uh, instant intimacy, cyborgs, modular bodies, cybernetics, uh, plastic surgery, um, as well as Robotics, changing the definition of man, artificial insemination, test tube babies, changing families, group marriages, communes, pornography, uh, general unrest, genetics, genetic arm races, genetic engineering, mind and body control, cloning. Um, <laughs> it, see, it just it just changes and changes and changes at, at every level of of our existence, every level of our current 1970s world. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting the way that he approaches them because something like um, the artificial elbow, you know, that that might uh, lead to the cyborgs among us, which is actually a chapter title. Um, He's basing that on what he sees as modularism in architecture because he's seeing this in other sectors of industry. Like Mm -hmm. you have this push toward trying to make things compact, trying to make things so that they can be transported and changed up. And he's beginning to see in robotics the infancy of this, where the same sort of thing is happening with the human body in terms of trying to replace parts or make them more adaptable. And that's what's so interesting about it, just the, the way that he's coming at this, or I should say he and his wife, Heidi Toffler, are coming at this, is that they're really basing that on the sort of things that they are seeing. Uh, and it's not just in robotics, but you know, spreading out through society. And I just wanted to read this one little bit that Toffler says about unrest and young people. And he talks a lot about young people. Yes. It's really interesting. He's I mean, you have to because it's uh, it kind of goes back to uh, Yeats, Byzantium, uh, the no country for old men. Uh, we've always been afraid of yeah. what the young people are doing and what changes they're going to bring to our world. Yeah, but it's the youth culture. And, and at one point, I think one of the chapters, too, is like the youth ghetto. Uh, but he says, it is clear that many of our young people, products of television and instant access to oceans of information, also become precocious intellectually. But what happens to emotional development as the ratio of vicarious experience to real experience rises? Does the step up of vicariousness contribute to emotional maturity or does it in fact retard it? This is These are the same sort of conversations that we're having today. Exactly. I think about that every time I use Tumblr. Uh, because a lot of a lot of young people uh, use Tumblr uh, as well as myself. So yeah, and we'll get more into that. But uh, let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll talk about uh, what Future Shock the book got wrong.
All right, we're back. You know, you mentioned some movies of the future, and in reading Future Shock, I couldn't help but think of Blade Runner and oh, Replicants nice. because the Tofflers touch on this, this idea that one day we could have clones or we could have robots of ourselves and we wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Yes, uh, the idea that I think the example is that you go to the store mm-hmm. and there's a, a young woman behind the register and you have to have that moment where you try and figure out is she a real person or is she a computer? Uh, is she a machine of some sort? And Toffler, of course, suggests she might be both. That the answer could be a little column A, a little column B. Uh huh. And then he's got an asterisk next to that. And if you follow that asterisk, it actually says, and it, I'm paraphrasing, but by the way, this kind of brings up, you know, sexual ethics between um, men and machine, and we probably should figure that out one day. Although, thankfully, he doesn't go deeply into that topic, or maybe. Too bad he doesn't. I mean, indeed, that's a whole topic right there. I think we've touched on that a time or two, in turn, and when we, uh, you know, discussed uh, human-robot interactions and the idea of uh, love machines, for lack of a better term. Yes. Now, um, in terms of cloning or creating super races, uh, the book says we are hurtling toward the time when we will be able to breed both super and sub races. If- as Theodore J. Gordon put it in the future, given the ability to tailor the race, I wonder if we would create all men equal or would we choose to manufacture apartheid? Might the races of the future be a superior group, the DNA controllers, the humble servants, special athletes for the games, research scientists with 200 IQ and diminutive bodies? And then he goes on to say, we shall have the power to produce races of morons or of mathematical savants. We shall also be able to breed babies with supernormal vision and hearing and, and go on. He goes on and on. He even goes on to say girls with super mammaries and perhaps more or less than the two. Oh, wow. Well, there's some straight up uh, total recall stuff right there. Yeah, indeed. So thankfully, this is a concept that either you could look at it two ways. Either that's just not happening or happened or it's going to happen. But cloning, as we have seen, is something that um, has fallen under, you know, ethical guidelines and has been restricted for a number of reasons. Yeah, I mean, we've uh, we've danced around with cloning uh, when, in terms of animal cloning, but no one's really committed to the full on human cloning effort uh, as yet. There's just there are just too many ethical and ultimately governmental and economic barriers that uh, and that prevent us from from going there. And you know, he also gets on the the cloning. I could go on and on, but there's there's one part too where he's talking about that where he says, "quote But cloning could also uh, create undreamed of complications for the race. There's a certain charm to the idea of Albert Einstein uh, bequeathing copies of himself to uh, posterity. But what of Adolf Hitler? Should there be laws to regulate cloning? And of course, in this we get into this area where I, where he's he's at least entertaining some of the more uh, drastic and uh, and hyperbolic ideas about what cloning is mm-hmm. the idea that you could oh my goodness they cloned Hitler now we have five extra Hitlers in the world and what are we going to do about it without realizing that uh, that even the reverse of that cloning Albert Einstein we've discussed in the past what is genius and genius is not just something you can cook up in a pot you know there are a number of factors that go into into, into what makes a, a great mind, not only a mind capable of, of, of achieving uh, of various things, but actually capable of pulling them off as well. Yeah, there is this, um, I remember this episode on This American Life, and it was about uh, a cow that had been cloned. And it was a uh, farmer's favorite cow. Oh. She had a very distinct 
uh, very deep relationship with this cow, right? And so the it was a bull, I believe, right? With like yes, horns. yes, that's yes. right. And uh, so the clone turns out to be nothing like this this other bull that he had, and it and it completely disappoints him. And so on some level, you have to wonder. Like, there's been so much research in the animal world in cloning that you know perhaps we humans have come to the conclusion that it's not really worth it for us at this point. Um, things are not going to turn out the way that we thought they would. That that bull, that human, is not going to be the person that you loved or the the Marilyn Monroe that the film industry wants to create again. Right. I mean, if you cloned Hitler, Hitler's clone might very well just become a yoga teacher. You know, there are just too many <laughs> factors at play there. It's like, does this clone of Hitler have have the exact same circumstances that that allow him to to reach this end point does do they have the same uh, uh, levels of power the same levers of power at yeah. their uh, at their fingertips to pull there's just there's so many factors there yeah now in terms of where the rubber meets the road here we know that researchers have used cloning to make human embryos for the purpose of producing stem cells so we know that we can do that but beyond that it gets a little bit tricky because cloning requires that researchers first remove the nucleus of an egg cell and then when that's done they also remove proteins that are essential to help cells divide. Now, in mice, not a big problem, right? Because um, essentially, they can replace those proteins. But they have found that primates aren't able to do this. And as a result, there's this molecular process known as imprinting. Um, it does not occur properly in cloned embryos. And they can, it can cause the fetus to spontaneously abort or the animal to die shortly afterward. So bear all that in mind, along with the fact that there's like huge ethical implications and it just doesn't seem that cloning is going to be a thing and the and my thing too is that even if cloning became a thing i feel and and you would have to have a circumstance where again it made sense and it was safe and uh, and everything lined up but essentially you would get into a, into this scenario where you would have children with only one parent right and that's about as scary as it would be it's not a situation where oh uh, the Koch brothers uh Clone themselves, and now they're little Koch brothers that are going to inherit the millions and they'll live forever and ever, uh-huh. all, you know, on into infinity. No, they would just essentially be children, children of a of a different uh, genetic construction, of uh, you know, a, essentially almost an asexual construction, but they would still be children, and they they wouldn't be like the scary clone army uh, material or anything of that nature. Yeah, well, they wouldn't have the genetic diversity, I guess, is what you're no, saying. No, they wouldn't. Yeah, but but I feel like. As children, as people, and as a reproductive uh, choice, mm-hmm. I think we would we would get used to it if it were happening. I don't think sure. there would be. I don't think we'd have a lot of future shock if there was a book. Susie has one father. You know, no, or I, one yeah, parent. I yeah. guess would be the title of the book. You know, yeah. you would just explain. Oh well, Susie was created via cloning, so she only has one genetic parent. Well, I mean, that's the some of the test tube babies, right? In vitro right. fertilization. This is something that has become the norm for us. Um, now, another thing that the Tofflers got wrong um, is economic growth. Okay, They basically envisioned a future in which the growing global market became more localized in the sense that there would be decentralized production enacted by the consumer. It's a little like the IKEA market, right? You get the parts, but then you put them together yourself. And they call this prosumption when consumers do some or all of the work of production. And they thought this would lead to renewable uh, energy, working from the home, and de-urbanization. Yeah, and it seemed like that's the direction we were going in, again, from the 1970s. But but they were based, basing this on the idea and, and basing it on what the uh, the, uh, the economists were telling them that uh, 
that, quote, the problem of economic growth was licked. That yeah. uh, that all they needed to do is fine tune the system, and uh, and we would just continue to see this exponential growth along these lines. Yeah, and it would be more of like an individual cottage system, right? Right, and uh, decentralized in that sense. Um, according to Richard uh, Koch, writing for Huffington Post in his article Four Things Toffa Got Wrong," their vision is correct in the terms of self service. We've seen that, but not decentralizing the global market. He says, "quote The rise of self service." Supermarkets, gas stations, IKEA, budget airlines, Dell, that's all been associated with the rise of new corporations and a greater extension of the market as the cost of goods and services fall. So, yeah, self-service fits in there, but that only helps the companies to decrease their bottom line. In other words, you can't stop the marketplace. There you go. And where do you have markets? In the cities. In the cities, which they also thought, again, this de-urbanization would occur and that people would move out of the cities and shift away from them. But as the world market increases, as we know, so does industries, because cities offer an infrastructure. They offer networking opportunities and shared knowledge. Yeah, I mean, they really got that one wrong, because obviously we've seen the, the tremendous uh, continued growth of urban uh, areas. And even even in an age right now where technically, technically, yeah, everyone in this office could work from just about anywhere they wanted to. Because we can all work on our computers. You and I are in the same room right now, but we could conceivably do this from uh, different uh, corners of the country. Yeah, we could Skype it in, right? Yeah. But but we don't because there are a number of additional benefits uh, for a business uh, to be located in one place and to be then and for that place to be uh, in close proximity to all these other resources. Yeah, it's uh, you can't necessarily have the Wild West. You have to have that structure in place, and that's what cities provide for sure. Now. Another idea that they put forth in Future Shock that also has not really shaken out um, as they predicted is the idea that uh, we would have a simplification of our systems via powerful, powerful computers. Sort of like the uh, uh, Toffler himself in a 1993 interview with Wired uh, magazine says, uh, the early assumptions were that the giant brain was going to solve our problems for us, uh, that it was going to get all this information together, and that therefore life would be simplified. What it overlooked was the fact that computers also complexify reality. And of course, this was a great disappointment to the Soviets because they were going to centrally plan their thing with a big computer. So this idea that like a supercomputer is going to set in the center of the city and then plan out how everything works yeah. and make things easier is both, uh, yeah, it's a, there's a, some truth to that. Computers do make things a little more streamlined in places, but there's, there's a certain amount of complexity both uh, in terms of our systems and in terms of our personal experience of reality. Yeah, um, if I am remembering this correctly, we did an episode on the Living Earth Simulator, mm-hmm. which tried to take like every data point in our existence, throw it in there, and try to predict how things were going to happen. So we're right. talking about like weather, uh, socioeconomics, I mean, traffic patterns, everything. Yeah, like they wanted to take various simulated models, such as weather, combine them all, and have a complete or complete-ish worldview of what the world is doing and to simulate how these various uh, various changes would affect other changes. But as as weather points out to us on a daily basis, it's not really that easy to predict what's going to go on because there's sort of like that butterfly effect. There's entropy in the background, and it's not really in the background. It's just always working on us, and so we rely too heavily on routinization or trying to predict things based off of patterns. Uh, one topic that instantly came to mind when I was reading about this 
high-frequency algorithmic trading. Uh, this is, of course, on Wall Street where you have computers that are doing the trading. Mm-hmm. And since computers uh, don't have to operate at the human cognitive um, speed setting, you have these uh, various transactions that are ha- happening almost, you know, within the, you know, just fractions of, of a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's been very controversial. Some people champion it, claiming that it, uh, doesn't pose any kind of, uh, systematic risk, that, uh, the so far, so-called micro, uh, crashes that we've experienced aren't anything to really get, uh, upset about. But, uh, then you have people like Nobel Prize winning economist Michael Spence, who thinks that there is a lot of danger here and that we should just ban it completely. So, Again, we have just the idea of letting the computers come in and simplify something uh, as complex and at times chaotic as uh, as economic trading. Mm-hmm. There, we see a lot of division. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? We're still feeling it out. Well, and then in addition to that, we have so much data coming in, all streams from everywhere, every corner of the earth, from drones, from satellites, mm-hmm. you name it. So. You know, you try to do something like the Living Earth Simulator, and who knows, maybe that'll actually come to fruition and, and, and work one day in the way that it's meant to. But for the most part, it's just trying to manage that amount of data. Right. I mean, there's so much information on the web. I mean, every day we're researching topics and we're going on the web and finding these various sources, and there's just so much of it. Like I, the the day I started here uh some number of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, 1900s. So, yeah, 1900s. I, I was actually going to the library. I remember checking out library <laughs> books for work. And I still pick up physical copies of books occasionally, but not with the with the frequency that I was then, because yeah. now there's just so much more available. But, but still, you look at something like Wikipedia, mm-hmm. which... Is uh, which which is great. Don't get me wrong, but even in this situation where you have all of this sort of communal hive think uh, contributing to this uh, vision of complete world knowledge, there's still flaws in it. There's still omissions in it, uh, and uh, and I, that highlights some of the the problems with the idea of computers and uh, and, and integrated uh, technology solving our uh, our problems. Yeah, and being able to just come in and clean it all up and make it tidy for us. Yeah. Well, it turns out that we are just a messy, messy people that can't be tidied. So we are not picking on this book or the Tofflers. We're just kind of saying that, hey, in this incredible uh, book detailing what was going on in the 70s and what might be going on in the future, there were a couple of things that um, didn't come to fruition. And they're, they're interesting to look at in that way, like what are the things that they got wrong. In the next episode, we're going to talk about what they got right and, and then some of the lingering like ramifications of what the Tofflers were trying to say in the 70s and throughout the 80s and subsequent books. Okay, before we close out, though, I do want to mention that the term uh, future shock has, of course, become a part of our culture. Uh, we still uh, hear it uh, thrown around today, but in the 70s, you saw a, a lot of it. Like, if you do an IMDb search for future shock, yeah. you'll see various TV shows that would label an episode, uh, an episode would be titled Future Shock. Uh, you saw... Um, Tharg's Future Shocks, uh, which was a, a section of the uh, long-running British comic 2000 AD, in which various sci-fi uh, sort of takes on Future Shock would be unveiled. Uh, and most remarkable of all, James Brown hosted Future Shock on TV uh, from 76 to 78, and it was shot right here in Atlanta, Georgia, as well as in Augusta. Nice. Augusta was his uh, home place, right? His birth, His birth home that's yeah. not the correct term, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, if you do a YouTube search for Future Shock, James Brown, you'll see some wonderful clips of this show, which sadly is not as futuristic as I had hoped. But basically, it's Soul Train with, 
with just this future shock in the background instead of Soul Train. Um, it's, it's still wonderful. It's still some wonderful music on there, but there are no dancing androids. Uh, I was and, hoping that like big puffy outfits that were like reflective metal, metallic looking. Yeah. And there would be like a lot of future shock. Get on. <laughs> yeah, lyrics about super industrialism and cloning, but yeah, eh, not uh, so much. But it's an example of the word becoming a part of our culture and just becoming this this idea that even if we forget what it means, it's still it's still there in the background. Yes. All right. So definitely tune in to the next episode where we will discuss more on the topic of future shock. In the meantime, you want to get in touch with us? You want to see what we're talking about, what we're blogging about, uh, what kind of videos we've shot, what we're doing on social media? Well, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the place to go if you want to remain up to date on what we're doing. You know, because you go on Facebook, there's so much stuff on there. You're getting information overload. You're going to miss stuff. You go to Twitter, you're going to miss stuff. But if you go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, it is there, and it's searchable. All of the podcast episodes, all the blog posts, you name it. Um, and then there's another way to get in touch with us. Yeah, as well. if you want to send us a direct data stream, you can do that by sending an email at blowthemindatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 